This is a CBC podcast. So, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how we're all going to go out. How it's all going to end. Earth's just going to become a rock in the middle of space. Whether it be zombie apocalypse, food shortage, overpopulation, nuclear fallout. You know, just the normal thoughts of a 7th grader. I don't really know what the end of the Earth it's going to look like, but I do know that the only really viable way to predict the future is to look at the past. So I've been reading quite a bit about the huge asteroid that destroyed our planet. You know, it just kind of big space rock rammed into our planet. 66 million years ago. The one that killed off the dinosaurs, it also killed off three quarters of the plant and animal species on the Earth at the time, which is pretty big. It's probably the closest thing we have to a total extinction event. But even with all this suffering and devastation, some things did survive. Like birds, which I learned in school, they're the only really remaining twig in the dinosaur's family tree. Which is always nice, you know? Gives you some hope. Life will always find a way. But the important question then is, how did it find a way? How would you survive an apocalypse? How did the species that survived the massive asteroid strike survive the massive asteroid strike? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. How does a song get stuck in your head? What is deja vu? What is the science of bullying? What are animals saying to each other? Why is space so dark? And when the dinosaurs died, how did other animals survive? I decided to see what my little bro Kean thinks of all this. So, Kian. Yes. When the dinosaurs went kaput, why do you think other animals did not kapoosh? I think some of them, they just were able to survive. Like, something could live underground and somehow survived. But the thing is, like, apparently birds survived. Do you think birds just kind of made it out by chance? I think the birds can just go really far. They can go high up and they can go far away from the blast. But the dinosaurs, they go like. He's doing weird things that cannot be explained. They go like words. And they can't, they can't go up. They just have to stay on ground, and they don't really have anywhere to run because it's like. Just imagine you're a dinosaur. Close your eyes, and then you just like, you see this big fiery explosion. So you're trying to run away. But the explosion, the dust, just it spreads too fast, and you're just just being engulfed, and you're trying to run, but you can't. You just you can't run. But the birds are just up in the sky having a party. But is that really it? Do the birds just fly away from their troubles? And then when the asteroid hits, dinosaurs are just stuck on the ground to perish. This is the question that scientists have been trying to answer. In fact, when I was first in college, that was the question that 
got me interested in being a paleontologist? How do we explain what survives and what doesn't after this event? This is Julia Clark. She's a paleontologist at the University of Texas at Austin. She studies the evolution of birds and how they're related to the dinosaur relatives that survived the asteroid strike. So can you tell me a little bit what the asteroid strike was like? I guess it's exceptionally difficult for us to imagine. Some people have uh, likened it to hundreds of nuclear warheads being detonated at one time. You're going to have things like wildfires and tsunamis and kind of nearby the crater. And then at a distance, you'll have ejecta raining down. These are little tiny pieces of liquidified rock that are spewed up into the atmosphere at some scale and come down locally and even as far away as Europe. Oof. It's probably the closest thing we've had to a total apocalypse event, right? In the last 66 million years, this is about the most devastating, near-instantaneous event that has impacted the globe. So there was the big tsunami waves, the massive wildfires, and then raining fire. How could anything survive? Most dinosaurs go extinct, but one group of dinosaurs survives. So what we call, like, flying dinosaurs are birds. But it's only one group of those birds that makes it through the boundary. And those bird dinosaurs are relatives of lineages we have today. So my brother, Kean, he thinks that the reason why birds survived was just because since they had wings, they could just soar through the air and just get the heck out of there. Is he right? You know, your brother is maybe partially right that It's only flyers that survived, but it's only certain flyers. It's confusing. Why did some of these species go completely away and then some of them persist? Some of the hypotheses we have is that it's related to how fast living birds grow. So living birds go from being little babies to being adults really rapidly. So because natural selection acts from one generation to the next, If you can reach adult size faster, you can start reproducing and giving rise to the next generation. Natural selection, otherwise known as survival of the fittest, fittest, is when animals that have helpful traits are more likely to survive, so they're more likely to reproduce, so they can pass these helpful traits onto their children. So by having a shorter lifespan, these species can evolve quicker because they make small changes every time, every new version, they make new versions faster. Evolving things like bigger wings or better breathing and harder conditions or a better metabolism where you have to eat less. It makes a lot of sense that it's a huge key to survive the apocalypse. But of course, there are other theories too. Other hypotheses have emphasized that Dinosaurs that were nesting on the ground did not survive as well, right, as if you could lay eggs elsewhere. We also know living birds have higher metabolic rates. That means they eat more food and they're more warm-blooded, like us. So even something as random as where they lay their eggs or how often they eat, 
that can totally affect the entire species' survival rate. Being small, apparently, helps as well. We think that because, generally speaking, smaller animals require less food resources than large animals, that they tend to be less impacted by extinctions of all sorts. Yeah, that's why I chose to be small. (laughs) Eat less, don't get wiped out. So let's see if I would pass the test for surviving an asteroid strike. Being small. Ding, 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 ding. Warm-blooded. Ding. Short lifespan. Hopefully not a ding. But that's just the birds. They were the only dinosaurs that survived. But there were other non-dinosaur animals that survived the asteroid strike, too. So how did they do it? This is one of our more prehistoric-looking animals. This is a sizzle, our alligator snapping turtle. I'm meeting up with Aiden Williams-Dale to get a behind-the-scenes tour at Reptilia, an educational facility that's home to a lot of animals whose ancestors didn't go extinct. They evolved into animals we know and love today. That looks like a dinosaur. Aiden takes me over to meet Mr. Blue, a dwarf caiman alligator. We're going to have our hand out like this. We want to provide as much support to the body as possible. I'm going to hold Mr. Blue, so... Wish me luck and for me to keep all my fingers. It looks like a mix between a lizard and a dinosaur. Its scales feel really weird. It's like soft tummy. It's not the type of thing you'd give belly rubs. (laughs) We evolved that later down the line. I suppose so. So what features helped it survive? They're able to survive very low temperatures. There's a unique thing that reptiles and many other cold-blooded animals can do known as brumation. It's a form of hibernation for cold-blooded animals where their bodies are able to slow down. You always hear about fight or flight, which, you know, means when faced with threats, your instinct is to either put up a fight, try to punch and kick your way out of it, or to just bolt and run away as fast as you can. But there's actually a lesser-known third reaction, which is freeze. And in this case, these alligators are literally freezing to survive. They can last a full year without eating any food whatsoever. So if those prehistoric animals had a big meal before the asteroid hit, they were able to last long periods of time without eating any food and not using a lot of energy. Aiden also mentions how being small probably helped Mr. Blue's ancestors survive. Although they're small and may not be as strong as larger animals, they are a lot faster, they have a higher metabolism, they're able to move around more efficiently, and they're able to go into crevices where most large animals can't get to. So having a smaller size also helped with mobility and just survival as a whole. So the small animals survived because they were able to hunker down in burrows or underwater and wait for the figurative and literal dust to settle. But the big boy dinosaurs, unfortunately, couldn't hide and just needed so much food and water that they just couldn't make it anymore. And they died. And once all these big guys died out, that's what gave the small animals the ability to have free reign of all this remaining resources. Fill a vacuum, you know? So they could adapt and evolve into what is now our current animal kingdom. Because dinosaurs were wiped out, so many things had a chance to kind of grasp at that moment and adapt to become uh, what they are today. If dinosaurs were still around now, I don't believe there would be humans. So because there was this 
near total extinction event 66 million years ago, the dinosaurs went kaput, and then us humans filled in the vacuum. Way to go, guys! But Julia tells me that humans were actually bringing another apocalypse on today. There are huge extinctions happening at a scale that we have not seen under some estimates since when the asteroid hit. Striking thing is, boy, you can look outside, you don't don't see a giant rock hitting the earth, but that's, you know, our human impacts on this planet because there are so many of us. In my expertise apocalypse research, I read that according to the United Nations, up to a million plant and animal species are near extinction and are likely to be gone completely over the next century or so. They are calling it a biological annihilation. And it's happening because of human overconsumption. We're using up way too much of the world's resources. And this one isn't just affecting big animals like whales and polar bears either. Even insects are taking the hit because of things like habitat loss and chemical pollutants. There's actually a study that says that the number of insects are going down by 2.5% every year and we may not have insects whatsoever by the year 2119. 100 years away, guys. That's like, so that's a big deal. Yeah, if there are no bugs, what are people going to eat during truth or dare? I talked to my friends about this mass extinction stuff, and everyone seems pretty worried about what humanity is doing to our fellow species in the animal kingdom. I, I've talked to people about this, and they've told me, well, who cares about the bugs? But they don't understand how important bugs are. They help support ecosystems, and without the ecosystems, we don't have oxygen. We would definitely be dead if there were no insects. Yeah, it's like a Jenga tower. If you take out the bottom, it all topples. Yeah? Yeah. I don't think it's fair that one species just can destroy all the other species. Like, they're so important. You know, let's be real. Humans. We're just kind of like the big asteroid that's just smothering the Earth. And if we don't fix this, we're going the way of the dinosaurs. You know, it has me thinking. If we're gone, or should I say when we're gone, what's going to be the next super species? I think if anything's going to survive, I'm rooting for the little guys. And I don't mean the shorties like me. I mean the little guys. So, time for another field trip. Let's go to the Royal Ontario Museum. 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 Can you see all that green on the tree right there? Yeah. All that's lichen. We're going to try to peel off as much as we can of that. We're going to try to fill up the jar to maybe about there with lichen. I'm just outside the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto with Sebastian Cavist, and he's the invertebrate expert here. Invertebrates are animals without backbones, so like leeches, spiders, crabs, those types of things. It doesn't take them long to think about which animals are the true survivors. If I were to hedge a bet, I would say that tardigrades would be one of the organismal groups that definitely would survive an asteroid hit. These are masters of survival, the tardigrades. So if you didn't know, tardigrades are these little tiny eight-legged animals, also known as water bears or moss piglets usually coming in about half a millimeter to a millimeter in size, which is around the size of your average grain of salt. And that's what we're out here collecting from these trees. Turns out they're everywhere on the planet, even on the trees outside the museum in downtown Toronto. It's plentiful down here. 
right? And the tardigrades will be inside of the lichen. They live on top of the lichen. I'm liking this interview so far. <laughs> now that we've collected the lichen, we're back in the lab and we're going to look at it under a microscope. Okay. <laughs> Sound good? Yeah, I'm just kind of following along. So if I just let go, can you see the stuff moving around? Yes. Let's see. It yeah, is. Stuff right there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So let me try to get that in focus if I can. Is that a tardigrade? That's a tardigrade right there. Yeah, it's coming out. You see that? <gasps> Whoa! Oh, there's another one. There are quite a few actually. So we had we had some sort of a jackpot here. There's another one. So I know it doesn't come across great on audio, and I'm seeing things, but. Tardigrades are really cool to look at, my guys. Like, this one is so cool, it deserves its own name. I'm gonna call this one Chewbacca Scholastica. It's a long story, but he's my little bro. He's so squirmy and chubby and awesome. So, if you want to know what he looks like, there are tons of photos of tardigrades on the internet, so I'm telling you to check them out. Chewbacca Scholastica and all their tardigrades are just, they're my fave, you know? I love them. Check out what they can put up with. This is probably one of the coolest parts about them. People have tested how good they are at surviving. And they have frozen them. They've been boiled in acid. They've survived a perfect vacuum. They've survived gamma and ion radiation, about six times the deadly dose for humans. They've survived 6,000 times atmospheric pressure. And they've been shot into space and survived. Can your favorite animal do that? Boiled in acid? Burned alive? Shot into space? I didn't think so. So then how? How do they do it? Their magical method. They go into a, a state of sort of metabolic suspension called cryptobiosis. Cryptobiosis comes, comes along when the animal is at stress and they go into a state where they shut down their body so far or so much that the metabolic rate is impossible to detect. In effect, they're dead. And they shield themselves off from the outside environment. And then when conditions become favorable again, they get reanimated and they come back to life from cryptobiosis. And tardigrades are, as far as we know, the only organism that can do this. And so that's what makes them the masters of survival. So just like the alligators, the tardigrades just freeze up in times of trouble. But, you know, they kind of wind up the alligator because they pretty much just vacuum seal themselves. But did the tardigrades survive the asteroid strike that killed the dinosaurs? Yes, they were around uh, during the dinosaurs. But it's important to note that they had also survived multiple asteroid hits prior to the dinosaurs going extinct. So, you know, they, they had some time to perfect their techniques. They did. Quite a bit of time. 500 million years, that'll, that'll hopefully do the trick, right? So, although I'm having an amazing time seeing these tardigrades, I still know why I'm here. For the very serious reason to learn the survival tips to surviving an apocalypse. So I asked Sebastian for some of the key takeaways I can learn from these little guys. The first thing that they do really well is that they adapt to the environment that they're in. The second thing, of course, is that they 
if they cannot change enough with an ever-changing environment, then they go into cryptobiosis. And then the third thing I think is tardigrades can feed on, on a lot of different things. Um, if algae come along, that's great. Um, they feed on, on mosses and lichen alike. So be prepared to feed on anything that crosses your path. So it seems like when it boils down to it, to survive the apocalypse, you just need to be able to adapt. You know, roll with the punches. The birds and the alligators, and especially the tardigrades, they're able to change what they ate, how much they ate, where they lived, laid their eggs. When it got to be too much, they were just able to just pause everything and just wait out the massive soup storms until things got better. But I also feel like another key for surviving the apocalypse, however it happens, whatever it is, it's just, it kind of comes down to luck, you know? You don't want to get hit in the head with an asteroid. Will these tips help with the current mass extinctions happening? I mean, with this type of thing, there's only so much you can adapt when humans were coming in, stealing the resources, and lighting everything on fire. So, I hope the species of the world can adapt, and the humans of the world can figure out how to change their ways. So, my fellow humans, stop being such an asteroid. Dear Chewbacca Scholastica, the Ancient One, if you're reading this, it's too late for me. I'm writing from the bottom of the sixth. Extinction, that is. I remember when I first saw you in that petri dish at the Royal Ontario Museum. I had just gathered you from some moss outside. You were so squishy and confused. I didn't know I was confused as well, till I met you. I respect your life so much, swinging from microscopic leaf to microscopic leaf. You're like your own Tarzan of your domain. You are truly tardigrade. Would a moss piglet by any other name be as awesome? How shall I compare thee to a summer day, gnarly water bear? It's Armageddon hard for me to live without you. Gotta let you know that I've got to go. Gonna burn to dust in the extinction. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. The show is produced by the amazing Veronica Simmons and Amanda Buckowitz. Our digital producer is Judy Goo. Today my guests were Julia A. Clark, Aidan Williamsdale, and Sebastian Quist. Special thanks to Tina Verma and Sam Medina for their assistance, and my friends Zoe, Piper, Finn, and Caden for talking to me about the apocalypse. The theme music is by Johnny Spence, and another big thanks to Johnny for helping me write and record the Tardigrade song. 
next time on Ty Asks Why, the darkness of space. Almost everything we know about outer space, we've learned by looking at light and trying to figure out what that light is telling us. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. Hey there. Are you a teacher or a friend of a teacher or just ever so slightly know a teacher? Because if you are, you can use this podcast in your classroom. We got teaching guides available for free, including things like lesson plans, handouts, videos, homework. We got it all. They're written by teachers across Canada, so you don't have to worry about them not being legit. But of course, if you want, you can change them up for different courses and curriculums. You know, all is good. So if you want to learn more about this, head to our website, www.cbc.ca slash why to learn more. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.